Hey, everyone, and welcome to another Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco. Thanks again for being a part of this journey. Have a double dip today. I got two guests in front of me, which is awesome, um, Tim Swindle and Scott Brown, and I'm excited to get into their story. Tim and Scott are experienced entrepreneurs in the toy and game space, having successfully launched and exited multiple companies between the two of them. Their latest project is a new outdoor game called Paddle Smash that combines the best elements of pickleball and spikeball. When not coming up with new ways to bring fun to the world, they can be found spending time with their family or competing in whatever sport they're playing that day. So I'm really excited to get in this conversation. Tim, Scott, welcome to the Just Get Started podcast. Glad to have you guys. Thanks, Brian. Nice to be here, Brian. Yeah, this is, uh, this is awesome. Um, I'm a big sports guy, activities guy, so it was really neat when, uh, when this came kind of across my peripheral. I wanted to learn a little bit more about what y'all are doing. And just really excited because, and I want to get into your story more of just kind of the serendipity of it all. And that's why I love talking about the beginning stages, whether it's business or an idea that people are trying to execute on. Because generally when things get successful or you get, you know, you get bigger, everyone forgets about the early days of like the struggle of actually getting it started and how difficult it can be. So um, anyways, excited, you know, to get into this, maybe it might make sense for everyone listening in. I'd love for you guys to share, because I really want to talk about Paddle Smash today and kind of the, the, the whole business and, and maybe what you guys are trying to accomplish there. But I know you all have a lot of experience in the toy and game industry, you know, as a fun, maybe starting point and whoever wants to take it, go ahead. But I always like to talk about the getting started moments, like how you actually got into the toy and game space. Can you guys share? Is there a fun story or two that you can each share of how you actually um, got into it initially? Yeah, I can take this first, and then Tim's actually collides with mine. So uh, okay. the way I, I actually got hired as an entrepreneur in residence at a uh, venture capital firm in Chicago, this was like a let's call, call it a new concept that they were testing out. The idea was, we've got some money, we're going to give you guys office space. You guys being a bunch of kind of aspiring entrepreneurs, and we'll we'll be mentors for you. Um, you guys present ideas to us. If we like your idea, we, we might give you a little bit of money to test it out. So we'd sit around this office. We actually would put our ideas onto goldfish um, and, and put them on this magnetic board on yeah. the wall. The goldfish idea was don't fall in love with your idea so much that it's like this pet you can never kill. It's like goldfish, if it doesn't work out, not a massive deal. You can flush it down the toilet. Oh. So, uh, so we would write our ideas on the wall. We came up with this concept around brain health. There was like a study done that was published in the New York Times around the top fears of baby boomers. And number two was cognitive decline. And we thought, well, it's like maybe worth exploring. So we decided to aggregate into one spot a bunch of brain healthy concepts. It was like pedometers. It was expensive software. It was supplements. And then it was toys and games as well. Well, over the course of, of a I don't know, months and then years, that evolved to be mostly toy and game concepts. So the kind of quick and dirty version of the story was, is that we opened a location in downtown Chicago. We opened it right in the, in the fall of 2008, which for everyone listening, if you remember, it was the kind of start of a recession. Not a good time, probably, to launch a business, but luckily for us, it ended up being that there were some good things about it. One was that we got this really great location uh, because the mall was desperate to fill this void. Mm. So we got this great location, opened our doors, and immediately got great response. And so opened this first store, 
over a few months, we got enough confidence to try a couple more. And we've just kept having these test and learn phases of the, of the growth where we'd try a new style of store. We'd try a new type of location. And over 10 years, we grew to have 40 stores across the U.S., um, had a very successful website as well. And we were always on the lookout for kind of new, uh, interesting concepts. Um, and so that's actually how I met Tim. So I'll let Tim catch us up to his story. Oh, great. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, so at the time, I was a software entrepreneur, was building a, a software company, um, venture-backed, was you know burning a ton of cash, raising, running big teams, and I had an idea for a passion project as like a little side hustle. I read an article in Inc. Magazine about the Cards Against Humanity guys who happened to be from Chicago as well. And they had uh, kind of laid out their blueprint for what they did to launch Cards Against Humanity. And I read this article and I was like, huh, that's really interesting. I have a game that I've been playing with friends and family at lake houses and just late at night when you're looking for something to do. And it's a super fun game. I was like, I think I could take that and take the blueprint that was laid out in this article and, and launch this, this board game, this, this kind of adult themed card game. So I did that. I uh, did a little Kickstarter. Didn't crush it or anything like that. Like you see some of these folks blow up on Kickstarter. It just kind of barely hit our goal. But the day we got funded, I was introduced to Scott, who was running these Marvel's The Brain Store retailers, and he was kind of on the lookout for this type of a product. And so ended up being the first retailer to carry my game utter nonsense. And so uh, just like that, you know, we became business associates, but through that experience and through that relationship also developed a good friendship. And we'd always talked about doing something together. And so uh, our paths kind of went in different directions. Uh, Scott ended up selling his company to a, a large publicly traded Canadian toy, toy game company. I ended up selling my board game after getting into like Target and Walmart and some of the bigger retailers in the country. I uh, was approached by you know some, some bigger players in the toy and game space as well that ended up acquiring that company. And so we'd always talked about doing something together and you know here we are uh, launching paddle smash. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, I'm, you know, I'm curious, and, and this comes up a lot in the podcast, but you know, folks that are listening in, cause I went through this too, is like, you know, growing up, I never thought of myself as entrepreneurial or like, you know, wanting to do things, you know, kind of to control the narrative or sometimes the best way have that freedom and autonomy and kind of push ideas forward. I realized looking back, I actually had a lot of those qualities. Um, I didn't realize it until I got much older, but both of you seem like you kind of have those kind of, you know, outside the box thinking, obviously to, to have these businesses and what have you, can you pinpoint anything you remember maybe through childhood or beyond that had, maybe it was a characteristic that you had, or just a way of thinking that made you think differently than just the, I'm going to go to entry level job, work my way up and, you know, kind of just be settled in life. Um, anything that you could kind of pick up from your careers? I mean, I think I am a little, I'm definitely contrarian, um, a little anti-authoritarian. Um, I, I can remember some experiences just like as a kid where no, I, did, I bristle at the idea of a teacher telling me what to do, a parent telling me what to do, a cop telling me what to do. Um, and I think I, uh, oh, I think I recognized from an early age, I probably would work best um, where I didn't have someone telling me what to do, that I'd kind of be the one in control of that. Um, so yeah, I'd say all those, I think, from a young age, if someone said to me that this is the way it's always been done, my natural instinct was to say, yeah, but, 
um, maybe there's another way. And, yeah. and I think that's what works best for me. I, I don't honestly consider myself a natural entrepreneur. I have probably a low appetite for risk compared to a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, but what I do have is a strong ability to fight through that initial, this is the way it's always been done. Yeah. So when someone throws up that, um, I, I'm immediately looking for 15 way, other ways to do it. And I think that helps a lot with product development, especially because there are a million uh, red flags along the way, a, a million stop signs along the way that a lot of people will just stop and say, no, I can't get past that. And I think I have a natural ability yeah. to just say, oh, there's got to be a way around that. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, my dad was a small business owner, an entrepreneur, and I didn't really know what that meant, but he, he owned his own company. And I remember when I was like, probably 12 years old, we, I'm really into golf and I had to have a summer job. And so my dad was like, figure it out. You can start go caddying or, you know, whatever you want to do. And we happened to have a home near this little nine hole dinky course. And so we ended up basically launching a, uh, I was a golf pro. Like I, I, I gave golf lessons and I was in no position as a 12 year old to give golf lessons. Maybe I was like 13, but uh, I got these little uh, cards made up, you know, business cards. I had flyers made up and I put them in the golf pro shop and ended up teaching like little, little kids how to play golf. And it was basically just parents wanted to get rid of their kids for a half hour. So I was maybe more of like a babysitter, right. but it, it gave me real responsibility. And I had to set my schedule. You know, if I was, I was still a kid too. So I'd be playing at the beach and I had to know that I had to be at the driving range to go meet up with these little kids to teach them golf. And so it taught me a lot of responsibility early on. And I just, I think that little taste of working for yourself and just being a, you know, this little scrappy entrepreneur from a young age just made me always want to work for myself. Mm. And you guys each brought up some great points there. The the two I wrote down. Well, one is, you know, Scott, for yourself, like like skepticism. I think, you know, we all have kids. Like I try to instill this. I have a 10-year-old, like thinking a little differently. Like don't take everything at face value, how to question the world. And maybe whatever you're given is is accurate, actually accurate, but there is other ways to think about it if you do, you know, kind of ask those questions and be curious. So I like the I, I kind of summarize it, Scott. Maybe you want it, but like as being skeptical about the, about the world and, and asking those questions. Um, and then Tim on the necessity is like, sometimes we're forced of like, Hey, if you want this, you need to go figure out how you're going to do it. So you, you came up with the cat, like I was a paper carrier, you know, you figure out like, how do I get a job? How do I do something to get to the goal that I want to get? And sometimes it's not always a clear path. So you have to kind of be creative and think outside the box. So it's kind of at least two points I picked up. I don't know if you guys would agree with those words or would add anything different. Yeah, I'll just add, there's a book I love called The Innovator's Dilemma. And I mean, the premise of the book is that there's big companies around right now that won't be around 10 years from now or will be much smaller. And why is that? They seem so uh, in such a position that they should be able to hold on to that lead. But what causes that is that they've got this um, reluctance to innovate because they fear the risk. And so the kind of the benefit of someone like us or these entrepreneurs is that we don't have any, or at least a big, big downside risk. So we can take the swings that these big companies can't take. And I experienced that personally. I went from this small, scrappy up and coming retail chain, and we were developing our own products. We had 150 products that we had developed mm -hmm. under our brand. And, you know, every idea we'd like, oh, we could do that. 
like, oh, that's a crazy idea. Well, we can figure out how to do that. It's just everything was sort of an, a, an option. And then I went, so my company got acquired by this massive multi-billion dollar publicly traded Canadian company. And the contrast of that experience. So, so on the one hand, they're big and they've done something right, of course. But then there's this, this fear that I experienced inside of that big company of doing anything outside of sort of their lane that they were so used to that got them where they were. And then what happens is they protect that lane and then all of this competition comes in and starts gr grabbing all of the peripherals. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just saw that. I, I experienced sort of the big company protection um, that it's really the opportunity for entrepreneurs to just pick an industry, figure out what lane the big companies are trying to protect and go after the peripheral stuff or, around the edges because they won't protect that stuff. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Tim, anything to add on top of that? No, I love that. So, let that one be. <laughs> well, so I want to get into, uh, that was a good background, by the way. I appreciate y'all sharing that. I want to get into kind of paddle smash and kind of obviously, you know, hitting on the, the craze of pickleball that's become such a, a pheno phenomenal, you know, whatever you want to call it, thing in the, uh, in the world over the last couple of years um, of getting into that story. But before we do, can you guys share, so obviously doing some research on this, can you share with everyone who is Joe Bingham and how does he come into the equation here? Yeah, so Joe Bingham is this gentleman from Ogden, Utah. He has seven kids, and he is the inventor of Paddle Smash. And so uh, just to give a overview really quickly of what Paddle Smash is, Paddle Smash is basically pickleball meets spike ball. It's like they had a love child, and Paddle Smash was created. So you play the game with a pickleball paddle and ball. And then it's played on like a hexagonal surface, um, similar to the round surface of a spike ball, but spike ball has a net and ours is like a hard plastic surface with a net that goes around it. So anyway, Joe is also an engineer by trade and Joe loves, his kids love playing pickleball. But like you just mentioned, pickleball craze is happening right now. Everyone's into it. In their case, pickleball courts are like 20 minutes away. They're always packed. The family also, they, they used to love playing spike ball. Joe's a little older now and his kids are in high school and they basically kick his butt. And so he can't really keep up with them and compete. And so Joe, just being this kind of tinker engineering guy, he was like, I'm going to come up with something that I can be good at, that I can compete with these kids at, that we can just play in our backyard. And so out of that pain, he started, he started tinkering and came up with this concept of basically gluing, you know, he glued some like big plastic pieces together and bought some net and just kind of, you know, used his engineering brain to come up with a new game and refined it over a series of years. You know, he was comfortable using CNC machines and routers and things like that. And, uh, you know, he, he came up with this concept and uh, would play it, play test it with neighbors and family and ended up having a great time with it. And so over this period of two years, uh, they really perfected this game and he wanted to bring it to market. Uh, however, just, you know, di didn't have the, called the know-how or whatever. And through a mutual friend was introduced to Scott who saw this and was like, there's something here. Mm. And uh, so we've licensed the idea from Joe and are, are bringing it to market basically as, a, as we speak. Scott, could you share that first encounter? Like, what did you think when you, when you heard about it? When you when you were like, you know, to maybe talk to Joe for the first time? Yeah. So, in my role at this previous company, I was fielding ideas all day long. I mean, had to have been 
I don't know, 10, 15,000 ideas I saw over the course of 10 years. Um, and so people are constantly pitching to me. And I'd say over that course of 10 years, I developed a pretty good radar for good versus bad. Um, and then I guess the other benefit of having been in that role is that everyone knows what I do and everyone's always telling me about uh, an idea they have or a, a family member. So whenever someone meets me and finds out what I do, almost always they know someone that's created something and they yeah. want me to see it. Yeah. Um, and, and I love that. It's great. So I met a guy, we were playing pickleball together actually. And he's like, Hey, you probably get this all the time, but my brother-in-law created a game. You want to see it? And I'm like, I always say, yes, I always want to see these ideas. Um, even though probably honestly, 98% of them are, are bad. Um, but you know, there's always this gem. So I, I, I got connected with Joe, uh, Joe initially just a phone call told me what it was about. And I was like, this sounds like something I'd like to see in person. Let's meet up. So I went up to Joe's house, not too far from me. And I played it in his backyard. Um, and I'm like, I, you know, this is again, my radar. I am almost always very skeptical of an idea. And again, we'll go back to our, my right. natural skepticism. I'm always like, all right, you've got to convince me here. And I just felt that drop um, just immediately was like, all right, there's actually some really good stuff about it about this game. I felt the same pain Joe felt, you know, I'm younger than him, but not by much. I'm in my forties. I can't keep up with my nephews. I can't keep up with my teenage daughter, even in spike ball. So I'm like, Oh, what? I, I like that this game kind of levels the playing field a little bit. It's just easier to play than spike ball. Um, so I'm like, all right, this resonates with me. That's a big barrier for me. Is it, does it resonate? And I'm like, all right, Tim, we've been waiting for an opportunity. I got on a call with Tim. I'm like, Tim, there might be something here. I described it to him and he's like, that's interesting, but I'm not going to just take your word for it, Scott. I'm going to fly out to Utah um, from Chicago to check this out. So he flew out. This was, um, it was over a year ago now. Um, Tim flew out to my house. We played it in my backyard and it passed Tim's initial filter too. He was like, all right, like I see it. I'm feeling what, you're, what you felt, but that's not enough. And again, I go back to my experience with all these inventors always pitching me ideas the most common phrase I hear from an inventor that's unseasoned is my friends and family love it. And it's a big red flag for me, honestly, when someone says that I'm like, well, great. The people that love you, love your idea. Well, that, that doesn't tell me much. And so I know that. And I pulled myself to the same standard. Well, let's break outside of our own personal biases and our own family. And let's go out and see if in the real world, people like this. So we took it down to the local pickleball courts and just set it up outside of the courts and it was like immediate people stopped playing mid game. I came up to the fence to watch what we were doing out there. People were coming out asking if they could play. There was one guy like the entire time playing just had this grin on his face, just kept saying over and over. I love this. I love this. Um, he actually wanted to buy our prototype. He wanted to invest in the company right there. Um, he, he left and we're like, Oh, where did he, where did Alan go? And came back 10 minutes later and he, with his teenage son, he's like, I had to have, I had to let Dylan see this game. Mm. Um, so we're like, all right, there's some nice validation. And we did not, as a side note, we did not present this as our idea. We presented it as, hey, we've got someone that's brought us this concept. We have no idea if this is any good. Let's play it together and figure this out together. Mm. And I think that breaks, it puts down people's barriers of, hurt, of worry about hurting your feelings. Yeah. Um, and that's, I guess, just a key point as you're putting your idea out in the world initially for feedback is figure out a way to present it 
as if it's not your, your concept. I always say this to game inventors. When you're holding a playtesting session, say, my buddy lent me this game. He wants to get some feedback. Let's play it together. Don't ever tell people it's yours. So we didn't. We got what we considered very honest feedback. And I mean, honestly, after an hour of playing there at the pickleball courts, we both looked at each other and we're like, all right, this is real. This is like potentially great. Let's, let's pursue this. And so, and so that's really what led to us deciding let's go forward and kind of the next year's worth of developing this product and getting it ready for market. Yeah. And you make a great point there just to underscore about the, I just finished this book. Have you guys read it called the mom test? I just read it last okay, week. There you, go. Like, there you so go. funny. So yeah. a small world, but like, yeah, the, this whole concept of like, yeah, you, you know, if you ask someone like, Hey, tell me and you give them the idea the product that they're going to probably agree with you, or they're going to be very kind um, just because that's how most people are. And unfortunately it's going to give you a bad perception of if it actually is really good. Um, what did, I, I'm, I'm curious this, to, before we go forward with uh, Joe, what was he like? What would, if you didn't happen to, you know, serendipity didn't come into play, you didn't come into his world. What was he going to do with it? Like, was he just going to play in his backyard with his kids? Like, did he, I mean, did he have any idea of like how big this could be? No, Joe didn't know. Joe had no experience in this space. Joe is, he's like all of those new inventors that just really love their thing, have no idea what to do with it. And that is the most common spot I find inventors is like, Oh, there's something here and I just don't have any idea. And it's valid. It's not easy to make product. I mean, it took, Tim and I have a lot of experience in product development and it still took us a lot of time and a lot of money to even get this thing to market. Um, I mean, truly, if I was kind of, if, to anyone listening, thinking about whether or not to bring their idea to the world, I mean, one caution I would say is if it costs a lot of money to even get a viable product out there, I'd say be careful if that's your first product. Um, like, you know, Tim, through a kind of happenstance, Tim, Tim was able to do this in a really smart way with his initial game. It was all card-based. He produced in the U.S. He could do a really small minimum order, initial order. And so he was able with just, you know, maybe call it a couple thousand dollars to get a viable product that he could put in front of consumers and find out, find out if they would be willing to part with their money for it. Kickstarter is another great way, um, ah, great-ish way. It's not great for all ideas. It's great for a certain type of idea. Um, and so, you know, the key here, I'd say, is just to find a viable way to test your idea as cheaply as possible. Well, Tim and I, we decided to kind of go contrary to that, mostly because we both have a lot of experience. We both have industry connections. We both have retail connections. And so that's, I think, important stuff for us to be able to say, well, let's take the risk. But Full transparency, this costs a lot of money to even get a viable product to market. Um, and so it's a lot higher risk uh, to, to even test this out. So Joe didn't know. Joe didn't have any connections. Joe, I mean, honestly, it probably would have just lingered in his garage and been a family game forever. Mm. Um, but we, like, through a series of serendipitous you know, right. connections, met Joe. And I think Joe, like, he texts me a couple times every week, and he's just like, I'm just so happy. I'm just so happy I met you guys. This never would have come to market if I hadn't met you guys. And obviously that feels good to us. And maybe, maybe he's wrong. Maybe he would have met someone else, but that's the key. Like Joe recognized the opportunity and so did we. What about the, and again, this doesn't come up a ton of the podcast. So I'm going to take the opportunity to, to get your all's thoughts on it. You mentioned you're licensing it from Joe. How did the, 
the business arrangement work out in terms of, because that's something, again, someone might be like, oh yeah, I got this. Someone did this idea. I'm going to try to go run with it. Well, if you don't have a business arrangement in place, that could fall, you know, you could waste a lot of time and energy. And so how, how did you kind of work through the business arrangement, the licensing structure, any details you can share there or anything maybe helpful for folks that are in that position? Sure. So I think in, in the toying game space, it, that's a fairly common concept where you have an inventor who doesn't want to take, you know, they're good at inventing things. They like, you know, they're more of that engineering brain and they like coming up with concepts and ideas, but they don't want to be the one to figure out manufacturing, production, marketing, sales, mm -hmm. you know, taking on huge like risk with inventory, things like that. And so what you'll find a lot of times is these inventors, they're professional inventors. They build relationships with publishers, people like Scott and I, or bigger companies that you've heard of like Hasbro. And they will take meetings with those folks to show them their idea in return for a royalty. And so I believe that that exists in other businesses and, and, and industries, but it's something that's very common within the toy and game industry. Uh, the, the alternative would be like what I did with the, the first game that I made, which was utter nonsense. As Scott said, it, it was a box of cards. It was fairly low risk for me to create that and, and bring it to market. And I explored doing a royalty agreement, but I just felt like the upside for me was, was much better if I just did this myself and mm -hmm. self-published it. So anyway, uh, there is a precedent that exists within our industry as far as royalty amounts. And I'll just share that is 5%. And that's just more or less what you find when, when you just have this idea, you know, depending on how fully baked it is, depending on if you have traction, maybe you brought it a certain way where you've already got a retail presence of some, some sort, or you've got it attached to a big star or something like that, where you can demand a higher percentage, mm -hmm. but generally speaking, it's 5%. And so that, that, that's what, you know, we, we proposed to Joe and then he was on board with that. And, you know, we've already, we actually have, so Scott and I, sometimes we publish and sometimes we actually will license ideas. We both have ideas that we have come up with that we ended up licensing for, for what, whatever reason, just mm. felt like there was a partner that was interested in the style of game that was better suited than us to be able to take it to market. So we'll license it and then it's nice. It's, you know, kind of that mailbox money concept where you just collect checks once a quarter, you know? Yeah. And uh, so that's what we did. So it's a, it's a fairly common practice. We already had language around that because we have our own agreements in place. And uh, it was something that, you know, we, we brought to Joe. What's been, so you said it's been about a year since you've been kind of from, from meeting Joe or kind of pushing forward this. What's been the biggest hurdle Maybe there's been multiple, but what's been the biggest hurdle to kind of get to where you're at today? Yeah, there have been multiple. There always, always are multiple hurdles. The biggest, I'd say one of the biggest would be uh, just getting that base to a spot that it bounced properly. Um, so this is like always a hard step is to take the inventor's prototype and to make it so it's mass market retail friendly. And so Joe had this big, hunk of plastic i mean it had to have been 50 pounds um and it you know it was big too and it's probably four feet in diameter and like there, there's no way we could have uh, taken that to a target or a walmart or any any retailer really and said all right let's put this into a box and put it on your shelf they just don't have shelf space that big 
Um, and so we knew that was a limiting factor. So we had to figure out a way to make it lighter and more compact, but without sacrificing the bounce quality. So one of the great things about the thickness of his plastic is that you'd hit the ball. And if you smashed it really hard, that ball, that plastic would still dampen the shot. And it's one of the things that's magical about the game is you, know, you get a certain type of plastic and you hit down on that, it'll fly a mile into the air and the game doesn't function then. You've really, you don't have long rallies, play doesn't stay contained. And so we needed to preserve the magic of that bounce dampening while also making it lightweight and, and compact. And so we were able to work with an engineering firm and there really is a lot of iterations. I mean, there were spots along the way where if I hadn't had a lot of experience, I probably would have quit. I probably would have said like, we're not going to figure this thing out. But like, thankfully, we both had enough experience that we're like, all right, we'll just keep trying again, try again, try again. Like, and we ultimately, like, funny enough, we went to Home Depot and found a, um, a work table that was thick plastic, but lightweight. They had done this ribbing underneath the surface that gave it structural integrity without it being a really thick piece of plastic. We took that back to my house and, pla and, and play tested on it. And it had the same bounce quality as Joe's thick plastic sample. So we essentially just said, all right, factory, we know this can work. We took photos of it and, and then they were able to replicate that same ribbing underneath. And that's how, that was ultimately the unlock was to find something in the real world, totally different category, but something in the real world that worked. And then the other big, just part of it was to figure out how to make that base fold in half so that it would be compact and could store all of the, the components of the game. So we, we knew that this thing wouldn't work if it wasn't easy to take wherever you wanted to take it. So the idea here is it's portable pickleball, but it has to be truly portable. The thing I love is I love seeing kids. Every time I drive past my local park, there are kids out playing spike ball. And part of the magic is it's so easy for them to get it there. Um, it's very portable. They, they're riding on their scooters, riding on their bikes with it over their shoulder. We needed to preserve that. We needed to be able to fit into someone's trunk and be easy to carry to the beach. So that was a big hurdle for us. It took us, I mean, we had hoped, honestly, to launch this, this previous spring. And the reason we didn't was because this base took so long to figure out. It, it took a good six months of back and forth with factory and engineering firm to find it to find that final version. Hmm. So ultimately it led, led us to probably six more months of development time than we had hoped, but it's worth it in our view because we got a very viable product. What about the market research of it? Like, so you're developing this, like how do you get it out to make sure it actually works? Besides y'all just playing it, like how do you get out? I, I guess I'm, I'm, you can take this two ways maybe. One is to make sure the product actually does fully work and then two, to actually start getting, like you did at the park, that initial thing, like getting people playing it, getting some buzz around it um, in the world, I guess, you know, pre-launch. So as far as the product being viable, I think we have just enough experience to know what the pitfalls are, what to look for. There was just little things along the way, like he mentioned about making it portable. So we didn't have like handles on it initially. We had to incorporate handles. Uh, we had to make sure that everything was easily could easily fit inside of this because you know people just have it sitting in their garage and they just want to grab it and, and take it to wherever they're going. So I would say for the most part, we felt comfortable with that process and just we could play it with ourselves and play with our, you know, just neighbors, friends, family, just to make sure that what we're doing replicates because we already had Joe's and Joe's was uh, 
not, although it wasn't retail ready, it worked really well. Mm -hmm. So as long as we could make one that worked as well as Joe's, um, but was portable and lighter weight, et cetera, then we felt comfortable that we, we had done it right. Um, so that's, that's, you know, the one answer. And then as far as getting the buzz going and, and, and marketing, I mean, I'd say we're figuring that out. <laughs> you know, we, we literally just launched last week. And so we're getting that going. We did, we did cherry pick a couple of retailers that were our, like, if everything, you know, was perfect in this world, we would love to work with these few retailers. And I'll just, I can share that publicly now because it's official. Um, so, we, so we said we would love to work with Dick's Sporting Goods because they're the largest you know, outdoor retailer in the United States with 700, 800 stores. Uh, there's another one called Shields. They, they have about 35 stores, but a really strong kind of regional version of Dick's. And then there's a, a, a concept called Chicken and Pickle. It's like a, I think it was like Top Golf for, for, for pickleball. It's like this new entertainment concept, you know, where you're going out and being active, but, you know, eating and drinking and whatnot. So we were like, it'd be really cool if we could work with those three folks to kind of help get the word out and, and get this thing, you know, in, in, in people's hands. So we just did blind outreach through LinkedIn. So just old school cold calling. And we, you know, we had some warm referrals because of our industry contacts, but we had not personally worked with any one of those retailers. And uh, so we just like hard, school of hard knocks, LinkedIn, finding contact info, telling our story. And fortunately, all three of them did eventually get back to us after some, some nagging. They were all super receptive to the product. I'll say we have some tailwinds that we're riding right now. Pickleball is a explosive category for all of these folks, right? I mean, they're just seeing pickleball as like a great money earner for them. So the fact that we're tied to that, I think was enough to peak interest. And then spike ball as well. It's been the most popular outdoor game for the past 10 plus years. And so when we're saying we're this combination of pickleball and spike ball, those are two very buzzworthy words that are probably going to get somebody's attention. And so in our case, you know, we were fortunate enough to make the right inroads at those companies. And as we will, we've officially been issued purchase orders from Shields, uh, dicks and uh we'll, we'll be working with chicken and pickle as well and do they just they do like a, a small batch run to start is that kind of how that works like almost like a test run with it or yes they roll? okay yes i would say it's someone in our shoe those are those are the bigger players so generally speaking the process would be that you're gonna start small maybe you've got your own website which we do in our case, maybe you're on Amazon, maybe you're working with some really like small retailers and you're getting data, you're getting reviews, you're getting sales numbers that you'll then in a year or two take to some of these bigger companies to give them the confidence that your product is gonna sell through in their stores. So it's kind of a big leap of faith for some of the bigger retailers, especially to take on a new product that's unproven. So we were quite surprised by that. But to your point, they didn't go what's called you know, all stores. Uh, they did do uh, smaller uh, test stores to start. And so that's what we'll be doing in both cases, which we're totally fine with. We're here for the long run. The worst thing we could do is there's, this con there's a term in our industry called, you know, sell in is not the same thing as sell through. Mm. And so what we don't wanna do is sell into these stores and have them sit on shelves, right? You need to sell through and people to purchase it, et cetera. So starting small, 
getting that data, understanding what's working, where should the game be placed, what's the marketing you know, lingo around it, et cetera, will be really valuable as we try to scale and hopefully go full stores you know, in the years to come. Is there like a, a US Open of Paddle Smash coming soon or what's the, the Paddle Smash National Championships? What's going on with that? I mean, that's that's the big dream. Like that would be one of the big dreams. Yeah. That's what Spikeball's done so well is they've yeah. created a sport yeah. around it and you can now see it on certain ESPN channels. I will say that while I think that's valuable, I think our key here is um, this is a family game. This is a backyard game. We're not necessarily thinking about this as the next new sport. This is not like something uh, we have aspirations of being an Olympic sport someday. I mean, awesome, yes, if it happened. But I think what we're really thinking is we just want to be a really great backyard option. Mm -hmm. I mean, as we've all hit on, pickleball is so popular. Most people can't afford or don't have the space for pickleball in their own backyard. This is not pickleball, but it's got enough elements of it that you get a taste of pickleball in your own backyard with our game. And, and, and for much less money, and it takes up almost no space, you know, almost anyone can put this in their backyard and have like a very great um, experience. And so that's what we think about first and foremost is the backyard game space rather than call these kids diving all over the place, doing very athletic saves and right. hits like, you know, you see in the spike ball. On, on ESPN, you know, spike ball, it aspires to help people to feel like they're athletes. We just want dads to not feel dumb. Like, like dads and moms too. It's like, we want to create a game where families can play together again. And, and that's really what paddle smash is. It's a much easier version of, of spike ball. What's the premise? I guess I didn't even ask this, but maybe as we're nearing the end here, what's the premise of the game? Like, how do you play it? And, and I'm, and, and then kind of part B of that is, Joe's version of how you play it. Have you guys changed that as you're launching? Uh, that's funny. We can I can share a, a good anecdote that you're we're living this real time, and so the, the game is played up optimally is two versus two. You could play it one on one or have three people play it, but optimally it's two versus two. And so again, the the, the court is this you know hexagonal um, surface area about three and a half feet wide in each dimension with a net around it and you serve to your partner and it's basically bump set smash so similar to volleyball or spike ball where you and your partner can volley back and forth uh, one of the small changes is that uh, you can actually hit it to yourself twice you're still allowed three hits per side but we just found it to be a lot easier if you were to be able to kind of gain control with one hit and then hit it to your partner again for them to, to smash it down. So you basically bump set smash with you and your partner, and then it, 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 you know the ball changes hands uh, and, and the return, the receiving team, excuse me, they're trying to then uh, take your shot and collect it themselves and bump set smash it right back to you. So it would look very similar to spike ball in some regards, you know, once gameplay starts as far as, you know, hitting it in. And then if you, if you can't get it over the net or you can't get to the ball, then the point's over and, you know, it's, it's rally scoring. So you don't have to be serving in order to gain points. And it's the first to 11. So it's, it's really, it's a quick game, uh, quick to score. And, um, you know, we've, we found it to be super fun. Um, but to answer the second question, I, I kind of buried the lead there a little bit. Originally, the way Joe was playing it was you you served to the opposing team, hmm. like in most other sports, right? Like in spike ball or like volleyball. And we just found that it was more fun if you just served your teammate. 
And then same thing with that bump set smash concept. We found that, you know, if you can get two hits uh, to yourself, then that just makes the gameplay more fun. Cause if we found that, you know, after a smash, if you're trying to go get it and it's just kind of hard to, to get it back to your teammate. So if like you can get one hit to gain control and then hit it back to your teammate, we just found gameplay to be that much better. And so our first production run actually has the old rules. Mm. So when we went into production, we were still playing the old rules. So that's what's currently on our instructions. And that's just kind of startup life for you. Uh, we learned a better way to play the game and we've implemented that now. And so moving forward, we'll have that fixed obviously, but uh, that's just the nature of moving fast and, you know, being a startup. And I'll just add, you know, even we printed it on the back of the packaging, the rules that Tim's talking about, but we intentionally didn't include instructions inside the game because we knew we needed it to be a little bit of a living, breathing document at this point. We just didn't know. We didn't have enough experience with the game yet to know what the final rules were going to be. And so since we hit go on that first production run, we played it hundreds and hundreds of hours and found better ways to play. And so thankfully, we did put QR codes all over the packaging um, saying, scan this to watch a video of how to play. And we waited to make that video until just last week um, when we finally knew, at least we believe, the best way to play. That could change. And, and I think actually that's the beauty of the world we live in now is that you just point people to the direction of, of a video and that video can always be swapped out. Um, People don't read print instructions anymore. They're always just immediately YouTubing to find out how to play. We recognize that. So we just have a video and we'll continue to swap the video out for the most up-to-date rules. That's a good point. Uh, but one, one last note is the, the current set of rules are great. Like I, I've now played this set of rules literally at least 100 hours. And like it is, it is so much fun. That's awesome. No, that's, yeah, that's part of the startup life. Yeah, the pivoting and, and you know, readjusting and tweaking. So um, guys, this has been awesome. I, uh, I'm excited for this, you know, paddle smash journey and to keep up with this. Um, I, I want to get you out on this and maybe if you can share, you know, I always like to leave folks listening in with, you know, maybe some motivation, something to inspire them to get started today on whatever idea they have, whatever, you know, thing they're doing. Um, so is there a piece of advice each of you would share with someone listening in that could help them further along on their journey and, um, and get them started? I'll go first on this. Uh, my, my recommendation is tell people about your idea. There's so many folks out there that I think want to coddle their idea and think that other people want to steal it, or I don't know, they just are afraid to let it go out into the world and to let, to let it be battle tested. And so my advice would be before you're spending any money or thinking any more about it, just start talking to people, tell your idea, share it with the real world and get real world feedback. You're going to learn pretty quickly if you have something or not. And that, that's just something I've found a lot with aspiring entrepreneurs is they want you to like sign an NDA. Well, someone like myself, I'm busy. I see tons of stuff. Like I'm not going to deal with that, you know? And like, you're, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with your idea, <laughs> nor does anyone else. And so get it out there. Don't be afraid of someone copying you or stealing it. That's not the way it works. And, uh, you know, get the real world feedback. That's going to give you the confidence to continue moving forward. Yeah. I'd say mine is along the same lines. I just don't treat my ideas like valuable or like precious commodities, you know, like 
you know, it's like Gollum and the ring and Lord of the Rings, just like my precious. And, um, you know, I think there's just this mindset around that when you don't treat it like that, then you believe that you have an opportunity always for new ideas to come along. I get stuck sometimes in these ruts where I'm like, man, has every great game already been created? Um, and I think in any industry, you probably feel that way at times. And it's really refreshing for me to just like think, all right, let's look at the top companies in the world right now. And were they here 15 years ago? And some, yes, but a lot of them, no. And like that is going to be the case 10 and 15 years from now again. And so there, that just means to me, that there's all of these opportunities and it's just, you've got to like think about what's out there. And we touched on this. This is the innovator's dilemma to look for opportunities on the periphery to just look for these like little inroads. And so many of the companies that are big and up and coming right now, basically just took existing stuff and mashed it up. They just, I mean, it's a little bit like there are no new recipes. It's just rearranging of ingredients. Well, it's the same thing in the toy and game world. There are no new games necessarily there are no new ingredients for games. It's just the rearranging of those in ingredients. And that's what we've done. We've just taken two existing great games, rearranged the ingredients and smashed them together. And I think there's just an opportunity in kind of any category to do that rearranging of ideas. Yeah, great point. And again, you guys are at the beginning stages launching this. So one, congrats on getting this out and excited to see what you do. And it's at paddlesmash.com is where everyone can go to get all the information. That's it. Yeah, that's the website. Awesome. Well, guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, sharing y'all's journey. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. We appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Hey, everyone. And just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianondraco.com and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in and have a phenomenal day.